This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome you to the Australian Museum and acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which the Australian Museum stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to their elders past, present and those emerging, some of whom are here, so welcome to you. My name is Sue Saxon, I'm the producer of the Lunchtime Conversation series and this is the ultimate session in our 2019 series where we've been exploring Australians who've shaped our nation and who feature in the 200 treasures of the Australian Museum exhibition in our award-winning Westpac Long Gallery. In the intimate setting of this Hallstrom Theatre, we've experienced compelling, nuanced and sometimes surprising insights into the inspiring lives of our subjects, giant figures in Australian medicine, science, politics and literature. And today is no exception, as Francesca Cubillo, one of the leading experts on the art and legacy of renowned Aboriginal artist Albert Namajira, joins us from the National Gallery of Australia, where she's Senior Curator of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art. So she's come a long way and we're very grateful. Today she's going to reflect on the moving, complex and disturbing story of this supremely talented Indigenous Australian in conversation with award-winning ABC journalist Tracy Holmes, who we welcome back to the lunchtime conversation stage. A few words about Tracy, although I'm sure she's no stranger to you. She's worked in journalism and communications for the past 30 years, interviewing some of the world's most interesting people on some of the most respected national and international media platforms, including RABC, SBS, CNN International and Dubai Eye. She's anchored her own radio and TV programs on radio and television in several countries and has twice been named a finalist in Australian journalism's most prestigious awards, the Walkleys. Tracy's also currently a finalist in the New York Radio Awards for her weekly podcast, The Ticket, and we wish you luck, Tracy, for the announcement next week. So as always, we look forward to your questions at the end of the session, and now please join me in welcoming Tracy Holmes to introduce Francesca Cabillo to you. Thanks so much for that, Sue, and I'd also like to uh, pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and uh, their elders past, present and emerging. As you know, the uh, 200 treasures of the Australian Museum exhibition in the Westpac Long Gallery is one of this country's most valuable collections. The history that it holds, the stories that it encapsulates, are really the building blocks of who we are and what Australia is in 2019. So uh, this lunchtime series that I'm sure you've all been uh, a part of before, and for those that haven't been, welcome to your first one. Um, it, it really uh, brings to life some of our most distinguished Australians from the 200 treasures and really shines a light on our history. So to introduce today's speaker, Francesca Cubillo, as you heard, she uh, is well-renowned, uh, known around the country, an award winner herself. Uh, she's a Yanua woman, Larakia, Bardi and Waterman woman. She's the senior curator of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art at the National Gallery of Australia, which holds 80 original Albert Namajira artworks, the largest collection in the world. Originally from Darwin, Francesca has worked in the museum and art gallery sector for the last 30 years in several state and national institutions throughout Australia and is the inaugural chair of the Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair Foundation. 
She is a Churchill Fellow, holds a Bachelor of Arts degree with honours in anthropology and is a PhD candidate with the Australian National University. Please make Francesca welcome. And I just have a feeling that there's going to be something quite special about today's discussion because, as it turned out this morning, I had to go to a board meeting. I'm on the board of the Chapel Foundation for Youth Homelessness and it was held uh, at an art gallery, the Nanda Hobbs Gallery in Chippendale, and they've got a current exhibition from the Namatjira School. And I was amazed because the colours, you know, that we associate with Albert Namatjira's artwork were, were just everywhere and it was just such a... A, a vibrant setting and I thought how incredible I'm now coming here to talk to you about this. We could actually talk to you about <laughs> your interesting path um, but we'll have to save that for another day because we are here to talk about Albert. Just a bit of background. We know that Slim Dusty, Midnight Oil, Archie Roach have sung about Albert Namajira. There's an electoral division named after him and recently he even had a Google Doodle created in his honour. But all of that came after his death. And celebrity in death is a whole lot easier than celebrity in life. Just tell us a little bit about the life of this incredible man and what he dealt with. Thank you, Tracy. Um, can I just say before I, I talk about Albert Namajira as a as an important and significant Western Ireland man. I'd like to pay my respects to the Gadigal people, also of the Aurora Nation, and acknowledge their country. Um, their country, of course, is imbued with the stories, the history, the memories of those who have gone before, and it is very much a landscape that, even though it is built up, in a Western context, it's still unceded Indigenous land. And I want to acknowledge the people who were here in the very early beginning. I acknowledge the people who care for this landscape today. And I'm very mindful of the leaders that are coming as well. As an Indigenous woman from the Northern Territory and from the Top End region, you know, I. I look to Albert Namajira, I look to this Western Ireland man with um, great admiration. Um, I think about the remarkable life he led at a time when it wasn't so remarkable for Indigenous people. And he was this person who navigated this space, knowing full well who he was and who his country was. Um, but he was also watching his country change around him. He was very fortunate uh, to have his parents and his wider community bring him up. A lot of Aboriginal people in that early 1900s period across Australia were suffering great, um, great trauma. Um, if we think about the Tasmanian Aboriginal people or in fact the Gadigal people, um, you know, the story of colonisation is, is um, really traumatic. Albert, of course, was born in Hermansburg Mission, the Fink River Mission, 
He was brought into an environment where the Lutheran missionaries were very much uh, engaging in a very humanitarian way with Aboriginal people in Central Australia. In fact, they were the first uh, people to actually write an Aboriginal language. They, they learned Aranda so that they could translate the Bible. So Albert was born into an environment that was both complex, traumatic, um, but culturally very, I guess culturally and structurally very, very tight. Um, so he was born into it and raised within this environment. And I suspect like many Aboriginal men and women in this mission, trying to find their way in a society that was changing very, very quickly. And did that act as a tug of war? Was, was he constantly feeling only half engaged each time he had to, you know, cover that, that divide? I, I, don't, I don't think it was that... Um, look, absolutely there was that element. Of course, German Lutheran missionaries in the middle of central Australia um, trying to grow gardens, trying to teach um, German hymns, um, uh, establishing a, a, um, a church. So I think there was a lot of change happening around him. But I don't think that, that um, you know, we, we, we get led to believe that culture somehow operates in a bubble and that um, Indigenous people operated one way and then when all these external influences came, things changed. No, it, our culture was always very dynamic and very, very mindful of what was happening around us. And I'd like to believe that for Albert being a very smart and, and very brave and courageous man, saw that there were these doorways, I guess, or, or I don't want to use opportunities as a word because I think that, that doesn't really value... Um, the, the courage that he, he entered into these spaces. But, um, you know, I don't think... I think things were changing very quickly, but equally he was very sophisticated and very engaged to make those decisions. Mm. So what about where the art came from? Was he already an artist or was it that incredible meeting and then the flourishing relationship with Rex Batterby? Look, art is a funny word, right? If we um, use art in a Western context, it automatically, oh, you need to go to art school or you need to be trained in a particular um, uh, medium and you need to decide whether you're going to be an artist who operates figuratively or engages with abstraction or you want to declare yourself as uh, uh, whatever. So I think art is problematic in a Western context. But of course, within an Aboriginal context, you are expected to engage in, in ceremony, in ritual. Um, you need to be able to define yourself. And so that means that you are expected to create. Hmm? Create music, create um, body design, or, or be taught how to, to be responsible. So Albert was always very, very creative. Um, he, of course, is a, is a senior man at the time that, um, that uh, Rex Batterby is, is in um, Hermansburg and John Gardner. 
So he is already a man in his late 20s, early 30s. Hmm? So he's ceremonial. He's, he is actually travelling with cameleers. Um, he is travelling with the choir. And so he is, is creating uh, artefacts that uh, he is selling in his travels, as well as the Lutheran mission encouraging Aboriginal people to make objects so that they could generate additional income. So he is creating, um, obviously creating ceremonially, but creating with new materials. So wood, he begins to do the burnt designs on plaques um, and on boomerangs and uh, on some shields as well. So when Rex and John arrive, he is already quite fascinated um, with this notion of somebody painting the landscape using different materials. And so John and, and Rex come uh, in, in, in 1934 and then uh, Albert says, I do want to learn. And in 1936, when they come back, it's at that point that uh, Rex Batterby and, and Albert Namajira's friendship um, re is really forged. And through that, um, they undertake two expeditions uh, of four-week duration. So Albert is the camellia, making sure Rex doesn't get lost in, in the bush, and Rex is painting the Central Australian landscape. You must keep in mind Australia at this point, uh, the Australian art community anyway, were looking at how do we define our own art style. So... We have artists that are no longer looking to the UK for um, endorsement or um, validation. They are actually looking at the landscape and looking at the society and saying, what does it mean to be an Australian artist here in this continent? And so Rex goes to Hermansburg and he wants to paint that landscape. So... This relationship, um, reciprocity, um, Albert helping Rex, Rex helping Albert. And on, you know, if you've ever um, tried to paint watercolour, um, you will know that it is probably the most unforgiving um, art technique. Um, I tried it once and... Um, <laughs> It just got worse every time I tried. So who, who has tried? Wow. Good on you. Who has, who has succeeded? Oh, right. yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a couple. That's great. Yeah. Now, it was only um, effectively two years after the, the lessons, if you want to call it that. And I don't know if you can call it that because it was just adding another string to the bow. He was yes. already an artist. Yes. But two years after this meeting, uh, he has his first solo exhibition. And um, 1938 in Melbourne, what was the reaction to that and, and what came from that? Look, what um, I think the, the, the surprising thing was is that they were actually sell-out exhibitions. Um, and there was subsequent exhibitions in, in Melbourne and Adelaide and um, on the East Coast. They were so sold out because, I guess, for the first time, people were 
seeing an Aboriginal person paint in a Western art style and paint well. Equally at that point in, in society and in Australia, there was very much a focus on assimilating Aboriginal people. So the missions were set up and the church was involved to, to I guess, provide a, a comforting pillow to what they believed was a dying race of people. And so the attempt was to care for them while they were dying or to then start to remove um, Aboriginal children of fair skin and teach them to assimilate into society. So Albert Namajira was seen as an uh, Aboriginal person who reflected assimilation in a really clever way. So on the one hand, they were sellout and people appreciated and valued what he was doing. But on the other hand, um, it was seen through this, this lens of assimilationist, um, uh, which was imposed on, on Aboriginal people at that time. So on the one hand, you want to, you want to um, really, really value um, the appreciation and the recognition of his art practice, but equally, you need to be very mindful. It wasn't seen as fine art or high art. In fact, um, museums were more uh, purchasing his work as ethnographic rather than art galleries purchasing. Although the South Australian Museum was the first museum to acquire an Albert Namajira painting, and that was in 1939. So um, it, it's interesting uh, that he gained more popularity with broader society and the public than he did from art critics or art historians or art galleries. And yet I suppose also for himself, he, he wouldn't have seen himself as part of the assimilation project, if you like. And, and again, that is just imposed on somebody. Yes, I think, I think that's a really... Um, he, he wouldn't have. He would have just uh, been... Uh, an Aboriginal man who, who was navigating this space, um, wanting to care not only for himself but his family. And this uh, painting and, and selling art was a, a vehicle that allowed for him to care for not only his, his family but also allowed a value statement um, to be given to his country. So he was painting his sacred sites, he was painting the landscape that he walked with his family, he's painting country. Um, and here were people buying pictures of his country. Um, so he wouldn't have seen himself as, as um, in that regard uh, at all. Um, but I think that, you know, we really do need to be very mindful. It was, he was seen in that light mm. um, by the broader society um, and, and valued uh, through that stereotypical lens. Mm. It's kind of interesting. This is a bit of a deviation, but um, you're probably familiar. Last week we heard the story about uh, the Aboriginal flag and, and what's going on there at the moment. And, and it's... A similar kind of thing, isn't it? You know that 
I don't know, the way an artist sees him or herself, the way the rest of the society sees what that represents, it's quite intriguing. But you talk mm. about him um, doing this as a way of looking after his family and providing. Yes. And I think something that tells a story worthy of, worthy of um, much further examination is that Queen Elizabeth II liked his work and awarded him a coronation medal in 1954. And yet, at that time, Indigenous people were not citizens of the country. Uh, Albert was not allowed to build a house in Alice Springs because he was Indigenous. He was not allowed to use his money to lease a cattle station, which he wanted to do to provide for his family because he was Indigenous. So these awards are nice, but when it excludes you at the same time from the, the very society that is lauding you, um, how much use is it? What is it worth? The, the interesting thing is that he is born one year after Federation. He then sees, um, I guess, the change over those decades to a point where he is presented to the Queen in 1954 and given a medal. He is uh, part of ticket tape parades where people are just... Um, celebrating him as an individual. Um, he is gaining, at one level, access to places and to individuals um, that no other Aboriginal person is being given access. So um, my admiration for him um, extends beyond bounds to think what he must have... Um, thought about what he must have, his decision-making, um, on the one hand being presented to the, to the most powerful woman in the world, and yet he is living in a country that doesn't recognise him. Um, he is being managed by state legislation. And I think the interesting thing, though, is that he was very mindful, too, of what was happening around him. And so he was seeking legal advice in the late 50s, um, around 56, 57, because he didn't want citizenship in Australia. He knew that if he was to become a citizen, that would prevent him from being with his family and with his community. Um, it would be breaking the law. And so it was bestowed on him by people who felt that uh, this was essential, that he be recognised given his, his profile in the community and his success. Um, it was bestowed on him and he only discovered when a journalist told him um, as part of an interview. So... Again, you just think the complexity of what is happening in Australia at this time, this man is placed smack bang in the middle of two different cultural worlds um, and does not have agency. He has, n he has control of depicting his country in a Western art style. He has control to a certain extent 
in terms of um, accessing some money. Um, he's actually governed by a committee of which he is a part of. We often think that the first Aboriginal Arts Centre was Ernabella in 1948, but it was actually, um, actually in 1941 in Hermansburg. The, the Lutheran missions, Pastor Albrecht and a few other missionaries and Albert um, were a committee deciding where his money went and how it could be spent. Um, so the complexity and yet the remarkable artwork that he produces, the giving, the generosity, the patience, the determination, but equally you can only imagine the, the pain of what he was having to navigate as well. And you, uh, sorry, you can flick through the slides. The, the words uh, that I hear you use, um, I, I think they're also quite relevant in a modern context um, for, for this story that continues, doesn't it? Because um, I think it was Charles Perkins who once reportedly said that it was Almut Nabajira that signalled the beginning of white Australia giving recognition to Aboriginal people. And yet, here we are, um, half a century plus later, still no constitutional recognition. Uh, that debate is still continuing. When do we give power to the people themselves? Mm. How far have we come in that sense? Look, um, I don't think we've come that far at all. In fact, Gulleroy Unipingu in 1987 also um, spoke of Albert Namajira uh, in an essay and he said Albert struggled for so long and yet didn't get any recognition and we cannot even get a treaty and that was in 1987. So you've got remarkable leaders, Charlie Perkins, well, Albert Namajira, Charlie Perkins and uh, Gulleroy Unipingu. And look, every Gama, every Gama, Gulleroy is saying exactly the same to uh, both the Prime Minister and, and the opposition, um, Bill Shorten and Malcolm Turnbull. What, we need change in this country. Um, why aren't you listening? We, we have had discussions. We want a Makarata. We want a, we, we, we want a change. We want recognition. And yet, um, it's all too difficult. Um, and it's interesting when, when things like, oh, we can't have a third uh, chamber of parliament. Well, actually, Aboriginal people aren't wanting a third chamber of parliament. They're just wanting agency. And if I can go back to Albert Namajira, that's what he was wanting, agency. He wasn't, you know, when you think about it, he didn't want citizenship, but it was bestowed on him. I think that point really typifies that there was no agency. So as Australians, I think we collectively, black and white in this country, obviously have a shared history. We are in this together and we need to find ways to respectfully both recognise each other and what we bring to uh, the conversation, but equally we need to, need to listen. Um, in Albert's case, nobody listened and he was granted citizenship. And we think that's great. He was then treated as a citizen of this country. Well, no, because he couldn't talk to his children. He couldn't talk to his family. 
Um, Just explain that a bit further. What, why? So as a, as a citizen um, in 1957, so I'm not talking um, centuries ago, I'm talking my grandparents' generation. In 1957, um, you, if you were a citizen of Australia, you couldn't have relations with any Aboriginal people. So you couldn't be married to them, you couldn't um, give alcohol to them, they weren't allowed in pubs. There were certain areas in the picture theatre where uh, Aboriginal people could sit and non-Aboriginal could sit. So once you became a citizen, that meant Albert could drink alcohol, he could go to the pub, he could buy property, he could, um, he could actually sit in the main part of the picture theatre. He could move freely in this country. But he couldn't do that with other Aboriginal people because they weren't allowed. So what that did is set him up to fail, basically, and that's why he sought legal advice to stop it. Um, his wife, Rubina, was, in fact, became a citizen as well. Um, Again, not because she wanted to, but she was the wife of Albert Namajira, so they were both bestowed this um, citizenship. But it meant that he could never um, associate with his family, his children. Now, in Aboriginal culture, there's this remarkable, remarkable complex kinship structure where you are basically looking after um, everybody through your family. So you will um, have many mothers, many fathers, many uncles, many aunties, many children. And, um, and this extends beyond your family boundary or beyond your community boundary. So under kinship, you can walk into another area and be, be recognised as being somebody's mother, which means when you are allocated those terms, you have cultural responsibilities. So Albert was carrying cultural responsibilities not only for his children who are biologically, but also his brother's children and he was uncle to his sister's children. So he had all of these cultural obligations to care, so financially he was doing that prior, but soon as he became a citizen, he couldn't do any of that. And ultimately it was that which got him placed in jail because he was accused of giving alcohol to an Aboriginal person um, in Alice Springs. So, what can I say? Well, is it, is it the trauma of, of all of that and uh, the, the inability to be able to reconcile that for, for himself and his family that, that led to his early death and, in effect, he, he died destitute. I think it was the sense of helplessness, having no agency. You see, when he was on the mission, he was still um, obviously operating under the, the direction of the missionaries, but it was a system that he, was, he grew up understanding and navigating. But the minute he w went into the broader society, then that agency was gone. So 
I do believe that that it was that overwhelming sense of hopelessness that that broke his spirit. Um, at, despite all of that public recognition and support, he was a, a man separated from family and and because of it separated from country as well. Mm. He left his copyright to his widow and children, but that's not what happened, was it? No, so his copyright's really quite... Um, it's, it's another uh, layer of... Um, uh, of trauma for not only him but subsequent generations of, of Namajira family. So the copyright was actually something that he gave to Legend Press. So this was a relationship that he had um, when he was alive um, and this person looked after and in, ensured he was given um, funds according to how his imagery was used. Um, it was a conversation they, that they both agreed on. However, when Albert died, the, his property then became the property of the public trustee of the Northern Territory. And so the management of the copyright still was with Legend Press, but equally it was jointly um, cared for and legally monitored by public trustee. So public trustee w did provide funds under the copyright to the family up until 1983, where for some reason uh, they decided to just offer the outstanding copyright percentage that they were responsible for to Legend Press without any conversation with the family. So I think the, that for about $5,000 in 1983, the rest of the copyright was given to Legend Press. And so Legend Press from 1984 had total... Um, and when you think about it, there isn't a... Um, RSL that doesn't have an Albert Namajira painting, a CWA. There's tins, cake tins, biscuit tins, trays. There is Albert Namajira prints everywhere. So, and whenever an exhibition was uh, done where images of his work was displayed or included, copyright would be paid to Legend Press. So, it wasn't until 2017 that, that the copyright actually, through lots of lobbying and, and, um, and intervention really of, um, of Dick Smith um, in conversation with um, our gallery and the Namatura family that, that it was finally handed over. Um, of course, Copyright only lasts for, I think it's about 80 years, post the death of an artist. So they've been given the family, the Namajir uh, family set up a legacy trust and they have responsibility for uh, the copyright until it expires, which I think is not very long away. So the family have it back. They have final agency, um, but it's going to be short-lived. I believe there's only one other uh, situation where copyright 
occurs in perpetuity, and I believe it's for um, A.L. AL Milne, is it, with, um, mm. yes, Winnie the Pooh, thank you, <laughs> where the library has copyright in perpetuity, and that's what the Legacy Trust are trying to do, is ensure that the copyright retains the, with the family in perpetuity, mm. but it's an ongoing struggle. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? The, the battle just continues. When you think about the uh, Albert Namajira story, how do you place it in um, a broader context of the story of Australia and, and what it still reflects to all of us? Look, I, I think it is, it is really indicative of our history in this country. The history between black and white, um, you know, keeping in mind that Albert was born in, in 1902. I mean, there's a history that began um, really back to uh, 1870 and next year as we embark as a nation uh, at looking at 250 years of, of Cook's journey um, to Australia and his arrival. You know, if we think back to 1988 and what, what the bicentennial was about then and how our country was both divided um, uh, in terms of looking at the past 200 years. So for me, Albert's story is a, a story of this nation. It's a story that, that really began in the 1870s. Um, of course, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people have been here since time immemorial. So our history goes beyond that period. Um, you know, uh, when you think about the Macassans visiting the northern coastlines in the 1600s and the fact that they were engaging for at least 150 years with Aboriginal people in, in the Arnhem Land region. If you think about when the French came to the west coast and down to Tasmania, when you think about the Dutch. Um, so what we need to realise as Australians is that this continent is very old and the Indigenous people, as the sovereign owners of this land, their history of this continent is both ancient but also very real today. And until we understand that history, the history that's before... You know, I was taught in 1980 as part of Australian art history um, in Adelaide that, you know, Australian art... Became, began in 1788. Well, <laughs> no, it didn't. Um, and neither did this country begin uh, at that time. So we need to really be brave and courageous and look to the past to truly understand where we are as a nation. Yes, we can look to Albert Namajira, but there are so many Aboriginal men and women whose history in this country is, is, is a story of of bravery, of courage, of trauma, um, you know, and, and that this history is, is something we need to redress today. Um, Do you get the sense that there's a real thirst for that? That um, so many of us who've come through the, the education system in this country weren't taught anything pre that? and that we've actually been ripped off from our own history as well, because that's 
part of what we share, isn't it? We were talking before, um, I remember when we lived uh, in China and there were Chinese people that seemed to know more about uh, Aboriginal Australia than, than many people that I lived with and grew up with. Uh, and they spoke about having kangaroos in the Imperial Zoo in Beijing 400 years ago, which was 200 years before white settlement. So do you sense that there's a thirst for us to be able to access that knowledge? Look, I, I'd like to think there is, and there is many, you know, if we think about how Aboriginal people cared for country over tens of thousands of years, that whole managing the environment, resource management, um, you know, how, how, how to use fire to care and regenerate the plants, how to not degradate the landscape, um, Cosmology, if you look to the stars, Aboriginal people's understanding of the stars and, and, and the wonderful um, spiritual connection that people have to the sky world, to the land, to the sea. I mean, we have so much to learn and yet we, we don't. Um, and I think scientists today are really are looking to Aboriginal people, but we need the general public to know this material. We need, we need institutions like museums and art galleries. Um, we actually need them to tell this story and, and to tell the story from an Indigenous perspective. And that means employing uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in institutions. And I know that, you know, this, this museum is, is moving ahead in leaps and bounds in terms of Indigenous employment. But we need to see that right across the country because it's when Indigenous people have agency in these facilities, we actually then truly begin to understand the history of this country, but the opportunity to learn from each other as well. Look, I think, you know, there's no denying we are here together. Um, you know, there's no way that things we can, we can actually... Um, you know, look to the past and say, well, we need to learn from it. We need to live together and we need to respectfully engage. Um, and that means we need to talk to each other and that means we need to empower each other and that means that we also need to understand each other. And how good is it that the museum actually facilitates those sorts of discussions? Now, um, we will take some questions uh, from the audience. So if you have a question, please put your hand up so we can bring the microphone to you. Um, just while we get that organised, one question for you. And I started by saying that we could talk to you about um, you know, your own story, which is so fascinating. But you actually have quite a personal connection also to the, the Albert Namajira story, don't you? Yeah, Tracy. Look, um, you know, uh, I grew up in Darwin and surrounded by family and, and culture and language and, you know, I was very fortunate. And, um, you know, in 1974, a major event happened and Cyclone Tracy came and uh, my family and I, uh, my mum and... We all moved down to Adelaide, but um, my grandma came down as well and she was able to, to save these two watercolour paintings. And uh, for me, I was fascinated by them. And, uh, and I said, Nan, who made these? And she said, oh, um, Pop did, you know. Um, and I said, he painted landscape watercolours? And she said, yeah, he could do anything he put his hand to. And, 
And as I've begun to work in art galleries and museums, uh, again, very mindful of the influence of Albert Namajira. You know, the man actually allowed other Aboriginal men and women to, to, to feel good about being Indigenous in this country at a time when you didn't feel good because you were separated from family and prevented from speaking your language. So, you know, when, when your grandfather looks to Albert Namajira and paints in his style, it, it's, for me, it just, my admiration for Namajira is, is escalates even further because my grandfather, like many Aboriginal men and women, felt good about being Aboriginal mm. and, um, and wanted to just be like Albert. It's mm. mm. an amazing legacy. Questions? Yeah? Yes, I note that um, Albert got sponsorship of companies like Ampol who wanted to associate themselves as an Australian company and they chose Albert Namajira and his paintings to do so. Were there any other examples of that and who supported him initially in, you know, you've mentioned the painter, Battersley, yes. but were there other companies or other people who wanted to associate because I remember on my grandmother's wall the Albert Namajira painting, so they must have been yes. popularised. Any comment? Yes, so um, basically uh, there were um, some enterprising companies who wanted to take advantage of his popularity and so um, Albert was given a vehicle and uh, asked to photograph, um, be photographed in the vehicle you would have seen in the earlier slide. Um, Strangely enough, it was that vehicle that he actually damaged his um, hand in the latter part of his life and um, really as a subsequent of that injury, um, his health started to decline. There was a pub, that um, a hotel, that wanted to use his name and did use his name and he was agreeable to that. So there was a Namajira Hotel um, I believe that there was um, also, uh, uh, th through Legend Press, a whole lot of uh, merchandise that was produced. And so the tea towels, the um, biscuit tins, the trays, the prints. Um, I, I would hope to believe that their relationship was respectful in that Albert r did receive funds, but again, he didn't receive them directly into his hand. It went to a committee and the committee decided up until um, he became a citizen in 1957, it was the committee who determined how he could spend that money. So there was a car, I think um, there was a hotel. Uh, his generosity, he always, I suspect, thought the best uh, of people and allowed for that to happen. I don't know how equitable those relationships were, but he, he did agree. Mm. There's a question at the front here. Thank you very much for your inspiring talk about the importance of country for your people and for Namajira. Um, I'd like to move to the level of art history. 
um, because he painted in the Western style. Now, since the 1970s, we have the new Indigenous art movement um, with dot painting, etc., etc. Um, at the art gallery in the last two years, the Win Prize has had one room which was devoted entirely to Indigenous art. But I get the impression that in the rewriting of history with the importance now given to Indigenous painters, Albert Namajira is seen as exterior to that and not part of it. I'd like you to comment on that if you mm. would. Thank you very much for that question. Um, so for me and uh, many art galleries in Australia, we recognise Albert Namajira as an artist. Uh, even though he is using a Western art technique, uh, that is not a mechanism that we use to determine uh, whether it is um, art or, or non-art um, artefacts. So for us, he is an artist. Um, he was recognised publicly and nationally as the first Aboriginal artist in that Western art tradition. But um, I also want to highlight two aspects, though, of his art practice that we've since really um, discovered is one that there are paintings by Albert done in that Western desert traditional iconography technique. So um, they are part of the South Australian um, art galleries collection. So Albert was drawing his country using that traditional methodology of iconography as well as the Western art technique. Um, for me, uh, there are multiple art histories in this country. There is the Western desert movement from the 1970s. There is the bark painting movement, which was very much from that whole 1800s in Arnhem Land um, to today. And there is Albert Namajira. 1936. So I see him as an artist. I see him as part of an art school. Um, you know, we're very familiar in the Western art uh, uh, history of, of talking about Heidelberg. Um, well, we're going to be talking about Hermansburg. <laughs> I mean, we should see them in the same light. Um, a remarkable artists at a particular point in their life particular point in time, creating remarkable art that we can value and appreciate today. So I'd like to encourage you all to think about Papanya, Hermansburg, Heidelberg. They're all up there from my perspective. Thank you. I'm interested in how his works reached a market. You have a photo of him on Sydney Harbour and I wondered, you know, were there exhibitions of his work? in Sydney or how did, how was his work disseminated? Yes, so it was the missions, uh, the Lutheran mission, and it was Rex Batterby and John Gardner. So basically uh, they saw his remarkable um, art and in that very initial beginnings, it was about generating income for the mission as a lot of mission craft activities were being done in the 1930s. So in other regions like South Australia, at Punindi Mission or um, at Raukan, 
people were making baskets and um, bags and carved boomerangs and selling it to the tourists to generate income for the mission. So Albert started in that regard and then his fame and popularity grew um, a 12, within a 12-month period and by two years he was having sellout, those sellout exhibitions. So people became interested, but equally um, those people like um, Pastor Albrecht and Rex Batterby and John Gardner, they started to represent and market his work more broadly. Mm. Last question at the back. Bujari Gamara and Vadeo. I'm a local Sydney um, Aboriginal woman, a Dharawal woman, and I have a, a long history here in Sydney with artists who were working in a Western tradition through the transitional artworks, um, the tourist pieces of boomerangs and things through La Perouse. Um, I'm wondering, you know, as much as I acknowledge Albert's wonderful contributions to the art world, is there a place or a space for histories to be rewritten, rewritten in that he wasn't necessarily the first artist to actually work in a Western style? Um, we seem to sort of stick to these mythologies, these ideas that we have from this Western-centric kind of learning that he was it. Um, but there is so many stories before him of artists who did work in that style, who did appeal to the Western um, aesthetic. Yeah, look, thank you for making that point. Uh, I think what we need to do is is we need to bring this material to the public. Um, we need to, you know, look at our Aboriginal artists from the 19th century. Um, we need to look at rock art in a whole new way. Um, we need to actually consider the, the, the remarkable aesthetic of the Indigenous peoples of this land. Um, through exhibitions, through conversations, through publications, um, through profiling our heroes. Um, I think the, the, um, the, the, both the, the remarkable thing about uh, Namajiri is um, he is uh, one of our heroes who, who, who had been put through quite an extreme um, part of history. Um, in a way that some others haven't. But equally, you know, if we, we look to Tommy McRae, if we look to William Barrick, if, if we look to Mickey of Aladala, we need to see those um, 19th century Aboriginal artists those, and give them their names again um, because that's the other thing is that um, many of the artists uh, and their work is is removed from history or removed from country or removed from um, language. Um, their names disappear, their stories are lost. And what we need to do as a society, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, is claim them back and, and start to teach them again. And yeah, I think exhibitions, publications, talks, whenever you can get a chance, <laughs> just do it. We do have a couple of minutes. I did say that was the last question. I was only joking. One more here. <laughs> if it's a quick question and a quick answer. This side. Sue? <laughs> the orange jacket, yeah. Thank you. A quick question. Could you just recommend a well-written biography of um, Albert that we could read? I only know the very short biography by Joyce Batty. 
Yes, so look, in terms of two major publications, I would recommend there is The Heritage of Namajira, and that's edited by Ruth and Vincent McGaw. It's very hard to get hold of, but um, that is certainly a very scholarly starting point in terms of his life. And then there is the National Gallery Catalogue that was edited by Alison French, Seeing the Centre. Um, you can't go past those two publications um, because they give you an understanding, a broad understanding of what was happening at the time, but equally the level of research in, in regards to the man himself and, and the, the stylistic practice um, that, that he developed throughout his career, which really was 1936 to the time in which he died, 1959. So very brief period, but those publications cover complexity of his life. I'm going to get you to thank Francesca in just a moment, but before I do that, I do want to point to uh, June the 25th, uh, which will be our next session here for uh, In Conversations with the acclaimed architect Len Merkett, in conversation with journalist and broadcaster Sandra Sully. And if you want to come to that, you can actually make a great day and night of it come to that, then go and have a look around the museum, check out the latest editions, and then come back in the evening for uh, the Occupied Forest, which is the latest in uh, the Human Nature series. But um, on that note, would you please thank Francesca Cavillo. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.